Welcome to the Brothers in Crime podcast. We are brothers. We talk about true crime. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And you shouldn't either. In the last episode, we're sure you noticed something was missing. But don't worry, Bob didn't kill me and take over the show. We just had some minor technical difficulties. Son of a damn onion! And like any good big brother, he stepped in and saved the day. Frankly, I think Keith Morrison better look out. How horrifying. But this week, we're back to max strength with a full heaping of The Brothers in Crime. In the last episode, we talked about the background of John Mohammed and Lee Boyd Malvo, and we ended with the shooting of James D. Martin in the parking lot of Shopper's Food Warehouse in Wheaton, Maryland on October 2nd, 2002. In this episode, we'll pick up from there, and as we start talking about all these places... First of all, the D.C. metropolitan area is huge. It extends across several different states, and I don't know how many millions of people it covers, but it covers multiple counties and several states, Maryland, Virginia, West Virginia, D.C. It's a pretty big metropolitan area, and some are very metro, like downtown D.C., but some of the areas within the D.C. metro area are fairly rural. There's a lot of suburbia in there, but some are fairly rural. Now, close to the center of this in Montgomery County, a lot of these places that come up, they strike a nerve with me because I spent a lot of time in a lot of these places growing up. This isn't that far from Baltimore, probably a half hour maybe, and a place where our grandparents lived at one point. And frankly, while this was all going on, dad was working there. That's I mean, true. He was working in Montgomery County. Like, he was driving by these places, getting gas at these gas stations. Yeah, even if they were places we hadn't been, we certainly knew of them and had been by them. And, yeah, Dad was working in this area while that was going down. There was that shooting at the Michael's Craft Store on October 2nd, where really the only evidence that anything had even happened was that there was a hole and some spidering in a glass window, and a projectile had struck the lighted number sign above an aisle at a checkout and that's what prompted the employees to call police and when they reported it it was very much like you would call in anything that you weren't that worried about it was ah yeah you guys should come check this out because it looks like maybe somebody shot something or something came through you know they didn't even say it was a bullet it was very much like i i I suspect maybe they thought it was a bb or, or an air pellet or something like that just given that you know, it wasn't that serious. And who's expecting to be shot? You know, it's just not something you're you're thinking about working in a Michael's craft store, I would imagine. But later that day, on October 2nd, the first killing takes place when 55-year-old James D. Martin, a program analyst for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, is shot in the parking lot of a shopper's food warehouse in Wheaton, Maryland. He was there buying groceries for his church. The 55-year-old was an amateur genealogist and a Civil War history buff. He was survived by a wife and an 11-year-old son. But the next day, October 3rd, that was the deadliest day of this rampage. That day, the snipers would claim a total of five lives, four in Montgomery County in the morning. The first was James Sonny Buchanan, Jr. He was 39, and he was shot while he was mowing a lawn. Sonny was known as a man with a big heart who always was ready to help others. The 39-year-old son of a retired Montgomery County, Maryland police officer, was an active volunteer at the local Boys and Girls Club. He was an amateur poet and taught children how to garden. He was a dad to literally 400 kids, said one of his friends and a fellow volunteer at the club. He came to the club for two to three times a week to help the kids with homework and whatever else they needed. He previously ran a landscaping company, but had gotten out of the business, and he was mowing this lawn at the uh, Fitzgerald Auto Mall because it was a former customer of his. 
And he was just out there mowing the grass the morning of October 3rd when he was shot in the chest and killed. So to give you an idea of how chaotic things were this morning, this first shooting that takes place on October 3rd, the people that are working in the service department at the Fitzgerald Auto Mall, they don't even report this as a gunshot. They think that somehow the lawnmower has blown up or, or that he it had some issue, maybe it ran him over. Uh, they just, in their mind, they don't process this as a gunshot. And it wouldn't be till much later that anybody puts together that this is actually, that he's a shooting victim. When the police arrived on scene, they don't recognize it either. And it's certainly understandable. They get a call that there's been an incident with this man on his mower and he's injured. And they look, and we all know that lawnmowers can certainly throw rocks or pick up pieces of glass or something. Or they're thinking that something has happened with this machine that has injured him and don't realize, like you said, until later that there's actually a gunshot. The same day as a cab operator, Premakar Wallacher, who was 54 years old, was pumping gas into his taxi cab in Aspen Hill, Maryland, he was shot. It was his 25th wedding anniversary. His son Andrew said, I just want everybody to know that my dad was the greatest person I ever met. I'm glad he was my father. Ordinarily, the part-time cab driver from Olney, Maryland, would not have been at the gas station at that time of the day, but he was trying to finish his runs early so he could enjoy the warm afternoon. He was born in India and planned to retire there. You guys had something in common. You know, you both love warm weather. Amen. Bob's out here complaining because it's 65 degrees outside. Now, Sarah Ramos was 34 years old, and she was sitting outside a post office reading a book in uh, Silver Spring, Maryland, near a retirement community, when she was shot in the head and killed. She was from El Salvador and a member of several church groups. She babysat and worked as a housekeeper. She was married and had a seven-year-old son. Lori Lewis Rivera was 25 years old and was getting ready to vacuum out her van at a Kensington, Maryland gas station when she was killed. She grew up in a small town in Idaho and had recently moved east with her husband and young daughter. That evening, they took a fifth life, shooting Pascal Charlotte, 72, just across the district line as he stood at the intersection of Georgia Avenue Northwest and Calmia Road Northwest. He would be the only victim killed inside Washington, D.C. He came to the United States from Haiti and left behind a wife. It's interesting to point out here that that was the only one that happened in D.C. and in this area where Montgomery County is to the northwest. It borders the northwest of Washington, D.C. It is very easy to drive through Montgomery County, actually drive into D.C. and not realize that you've entered a different jurisdiction. They, they blend together. Mm -hmm. uh, things become more suburban as you fan out from D.C., but as you drive in, say, from Montgomery County, that line is not clear. It's very dense and urban on that southeastern side of Montgomery County, just as it is in the northwest of D.C., so it is not a real obvious distinction there. That's a good point. And um, even though there's not a real clear, you know, it's not like uh, you're leaving into another country or something, it does just blend really easily. There is a, a clear distinction between the homicide rates in a place like Washington, D.C. or a city like Baltimore versus Montgomery County at this time period. Um, Montgomery County is one of those suburbs that, you know, people sort of aim and aspire to move into if they're in that general area because it's a, you know, it's a nice area and it's generally got low crime, particularly when it comes to violent crime. In fact, Montgomery County's uh, homicide rate was so low that this one day, October 3rd, where, f where four people were murdered, that, that would have been 20 to 25% of their typical annual 
homicide rate. You know, they were averaging about you know, 15 to two dozen murders a year. So to have four in one day, I mean, this is completely unprecedented in this area. Absolutely. The retired FBI agent, Jim Clementi, has speculated that perhaps the shooters here, the snipers, avoided Washington, D.C. so that they could avoid federal law enforcement that, that operate in D.C. and certainly have some kind of jurisdiction there between the Capitol Police and the FBI and the Secret Service and all those alphabet people. Mm-hmm. And that makes absolute sense to me that they would operate in areas that were not as accustomed to homicides, therefore not as well equipped to respond and handle them. On the other hand, if these things had occurred in a place like the streets of Baltimore in broad daylight, I don't know that they would have been obviously out of place. I think it might have taken longer because shootings on broad daylight in the street are pretty commonplace, mm-hmm. in, yeah. in unfortunately, in Balmer. Yeah. No, that, that's a good point. And uh, I also thought about, it reminded me of the Colonial Parkway murders, honestly, because that was one of my sort of theories with why everything kind of occurs in these really tiny jurisdictions, even though it's sort of right around Virginia Beach and right around Newport News and right around even, you know, like some of the other areas where it was more populated. Um, so I had the same kind of thought. But you make a great point that by if the crimes had been committed somewhere where the homicide rate and shootings were more commonplace, it might have blended in. On October 4th, 2002, in a Michaels parking lot in Fredericksburg, Virginia, Caroline Sewell, only 43 years old, is shot as she put her bags inside her Toyota minivan. She had been shopping for a Halloween wreath and a scarecrow that day, and as she slammed the rear door of her van shut, she felt a burning pain in her back, followed closely by a loud noise. After she was shot, she eased herself down into the pavement and remembers praying when she realized that she'd been hurt. She said, I prayed to God that he would not let me die because I have children. As she lay on the ground laboring to breathe, she managed to tell those who came to help her where her cell phone was, and she wanted them to call her husband because she was concerned about her children being taken care of. You know, she wasn't going to be able to go do what they needed. The bullet had entered her body in the lower right portion of her back and exited just below her right breast. Miraculously, her injuries were limited to two broken ribs, a damaged lung, and diaphragm. And she was released from Fairfax Hospital only 10 days later. We're certainly grateful that she survived. Notice that she described that bullet wound as a burning pain and that she felt it, then she heard the sound, which is very interesting. And I don't want to belabor this point. It's just another opportunity to show that many times shooting victims don't immediately associate it with a gunshot because it's not like in the movies where a, a bullet hits you and you go flying through the air and you know over top of cars and, and things. The common reporting from victims is, I felt something was burning and then I felt some liquid which was the blood, they don't realize it's blood, you don't associate it with blood, as was the case here. Yeah, and again, this happened in Fredericksburg, Virginia. So now we're a good bit south of Montgomery County. So the the pair has moved into a completely different state, a completely different county. And, you know, Fredericksburg, again, is similar in the sense that there's kind of in the heart, there's this city, there's lots of folks, there's lots of stuff. But then as you kind of get further and further away, it becomes more and more and more rural. Right. And this is, I mean, compared to D.C., Fredericksburg is a small town. (laughs) That's a good point. Uh, Three days later, on October 7th, the tandem took their terror to a whole nother level. Up to this point, even though everybody was concerned to some degree and many were scared, 
One of the few silver linings was that no kids had been hurt or even threatened in any any way. That changed on October 7th when a 13-year-old named Iron Brown was shot and critically wounded outside Benjamin Tasker Middle School in Bowie, Maryland. Now, Bob and I talked before we started recording. We've seen a lot of uh, you know documentaries or shows and listened to some podcasts and different things and interviews. It's not Bowie. <laughs> It is pronounced buoy, like boo, Halloween time, buoy. Or like a buoy on the water that's, for whatever reason, spelled B-O-U-Y or whatever. This is spelled B-O-W-I-E, which I guess you... It looks like David Bowie, but it's not. It's Bowie. Bowie, Maryland. So, thankfully, 13-year-old Iron survived, even after being shot in the chest. Part of that was likely due to the fact that his aunt, who was taking him to school that day, uh, and there's a whole story behind that, he typically rode the bus... But this day, his his aunt was taking him because he'd been kicked off the bus. Do you know why he was kicked off the bus, Bob? I don't remember. He was eating candy on the bus. Uh. The bus driver had seen him bite into a Twizzlers, and uh, so he got kicked off the bus for a few days. And so his aunt was taking him to school that morning, which was unusual. And as she dropped him off, um, he he was shot and fell down. And thankfully, she was a nurse, and she thought quick, and she got him in the car and sped off and got him to the hospital as quickly as she could. And he was ultimately airlifted to a Washington hospital where doctors removed his spleen and parts of his stomach and pancreas. He remained in critical but stable condition and ultimately made a a recovery. So thankfully he survived, but this was a new low, a new level of depravity in this case, where we're not just seeing all of these different types of people adults, you know, men and women being targeted, but now children were were in the crosshairs. Yeah, and the next day on October 9th, a tarot card was found near the scene of the shooting. It was actually in the kind of the brush. It was in the what they called the sniper's perch, what police referred to it as, but it was a tarot card and it was the death card uh, with a handwritten message in blue ink at the top that said, call me God. Now, I don't mess with tarot cards. I bought a pack of them once, and it was the whole deck was death cards. So I figured I better just stay away from those. I thought you were going to make a joke and say it was like a wedding present or something. <laughs> <laughs> so later on October 9th, Dean Harold Myers, 53, from Gaithersburg, Maryland, was killed while pumping gas at a station in Manassas, Virginia. A white minivan seen in the area is first thought to have some connection with the shooting, but is later cleared by police. Now, to that point, there's a lot of uh, hubbub about white minivans. I, I, don't, I remember living through this, and it was like, you know, you always think a white van is sketchy, or you should, because it's just a white van. But in this instance, the police, the media, everybody was be on the lookout for the white van, the white van, the white van. Well, I have a rant about the white van, but I don't want to uh, take anything away from Mr. Myers, who was a civil engineer and a Vietnam War veteran, and the bullet that took his life shattered his skull. He was wearing a Timex wristwatch that stopped working at the exact time he fell to the pavement from being shot. Rest in peace, Mr. Myers. What a way to go for, I mean, yeah. Yeah, to survive Vietnam and then to lose your life that way is just awful. Yeah, at a gas station. You're standing there pumping gas, and that's what I think was horrifying about a lot of these. But about the white van... I don't want to be like a know-it-all or anything, but the very first moment that came across the news was that there's a white 
work van seen in the area. And then we're looking for a white van with a ladder rack. And at one point, I think they even had a roadblock set up where they were looking for the white vans. They did that on 495. They shut down the Capitol Beltway, which is like, if you've ever been here, you know that road is, you know, it's not LA, but it's close. Yeah, well, I mean, it's basically shut down anyway where you can move. You're either going two miles an hour or 97 in the shoulder trying not to get put in the wall. But when that first came across the news that we're looking for this white van, I instantly thought, that's ridiculous. Because having spent a lot of time in this area, a very busy metro area, there are white vans everywhere, every day, all the time. If you go on 495... You're not going to be on there 10 seconds before you see 10 white vans. And my problem with it was, I, I don't think this white van is related because it's just like saying, well, when this person got shot, the sky was blue. That's It's, it's a, true, maybe, but it's not that helpful. It, right. There's yeah. a difference. It's a correlation that's just irrelevant. It falls under the logical fallacy of post hoc ergo proctor hoc, which... I don't want to break down the Latin on that, but just because one thing happens after another doesn't mean the other thing always caused the one thing. So the fact that there were white vans around, I mean, that was just kind of, you know, an extraneous fact anywhere you go in the D.C. area. What do, what do plumbers and electricians, you know, the cable company and the Wi-Fi, all of it, all of the contractors, all of the service people, and there's tons of those vehicles around D.C., you, you can close your eyes, look up, and you'll see 10 white vans at any given time at any given place around there. So I thought that was absolutely crazy, and it bothered me then that how we're going to have people on the lookout and calling in all these white vans that have nothing to do with nothing and be potentially missing out on something that is actually a useful clue. Which is exactly what happened, and we'll get to that a little bit later in the episode. On October 11th, 2002... Kenneth Bridges, 53, was a Philadelphia businessman traveling back up to Philadelphia, and he was coming from Virginia. He stopped at an Exxon station just off I-95, which is the main artery that goes all the way north-south through the whole eastern seaboard, but particularly through you know Virginia and that area up to Philly. So he stopped near Fredericksburg, and he stopped there because he was actually on the phone with his wife, who was terrified for him to be driving through this area where these shootings were occurring. And he assured her that she need not worry because he was stopping to get gas so far south that he knew it was safe. It wouldn't be an issue because it wasn't where the shootings were taking place. Well, it turned out that as he was on the phone with her, telling her not to worry, his life would be taken by the snipers. The police would set up a huge roadblock like we were just talking about. And they were trying to find a white van-like vehicle similar to a Chevy Astro with a ladder rack on top. On October 14th, 2002, Linda Franklin, 47, of Arlington, is killed in a Home Depot parking lot in Falls Church, Virginia. She was an FBI analyst and had just finished shopping when she was killed. Police said that she was with her husband when she was shot once as she loaded items into her car in a seven-corner shopping center parking garage around 9.15 in the evening. Now, was that the first one that happened sort of at, at night-ish? Because... All of these had been in broad daylight for the most part. Yeah, I believe that this was the first one. Uh, most of them, yeah, they were either you know in the morning or in the afternoon, but but always it was it was daylight out, which was part of the you know part of the terrorizing fact of this was that it was just happening you know in the middle of the day. Yeah, and it was happening to basically anyone that was outside their home. Because mm -hmm. you got a guy mowing grass, you got a kid going to school, you got people pumping gas, you got people going in Craft and out of the stores. Yeah, the grocery store, the Home Depot. So the only 
safe thing you could theorize to do in that situation, which, by the way, was about a year after 9-11, when everybody, particularly in this area and New York and the whole East Coast, was a bit vulnerable as it was, the only logical protection you could think of was stay in your home. Yeah. Because anywhere you went, these guys were just doing the things you do in life. Yeah, I remember people were, like, putting things up over their windows, and I remember... Our mom, you know, she was freaking out. She didn't want dad to go to work. She didn't, it was, and you almost couldn't blame her because it was like, well, I mean, that's like the only way that anybody knew to stay safe. Well, that's true. I mean, he was perfectly content and would remind us that his life insurance was in good shape and wasn't worried about it. And, you know, I have another friend who at the time, uh, I believe he was a lieutenant in the uh, Montgomery County Fire Department. And at that time, their order was to harden the stations and stay inside unless they were running a call. Because they just didn't know what, when, where the the next thing was going to happen. But they weren't allowed to go out and grab lunch or whatever. Or probably sit out. You know, a lot of times you see firefighters, They, if it's a nice day, they'll open the bays. They'll sit outside. They got lawn chairs. You know, they'll kind of hang out or whatever. I'm yeah, sure no, that there, was, there was none of that. Uh, but w- bringing that up real quick, it's something that I wanted to ask you about. And I just wanted your kind of your raw take on it. These shootings, you know, um, first responders have to respond to these. Uh, that's, that's what they're there for. That's, you know, that's what, in a sense, that's what they sign up for. But here, this wasn't a matter of the, the typical, we're showing up to a car accident or even a, a potentially volatile scene and, and we're working together to get through it the best way we can. Here, it was something that was so out of the ordinary where you have these, these shooters who are going on this rampage. And I have to believe that the first responders I mean, you just, it has to be in your mind that as you're responding to these, is this going to be the scene where now they added, you know, a woman and they added an older man and they added a child? When are they going to add the paramedic? When are they going to add the police officer? Um, well, absolutely. And sometimes we've seen in some situations, not with any of these, but in other violent episodes throughout the country where there will be an initial incident, which is really just intended to draw first responders in, whether it be police, fire, EMS. It's intended to draw those people in so that then the real attack can take place upon those people. It's disheartening and it's scary. But like you said, it's the job you signed up for. Uh, you know, you have the police there, hopefully to ensure that there's safety before you come in. But in this case, there was nowhere outside that was safe. So you really couldn't ensure safety in this area in that three-week period. If you went outside your door, you know you were at risk. To this day, I remember, I I still remember in the same tone that it was taught to me, uh, scene safe BSI. And uh, like you're saying, I mean, here, what is scene safe? I mean, is it just there's cops there and hopefully they're looking out for you. But, but at the end of the day, like you said, if you're outside, it couldn't have felt safe. I'm sure it was nerve wracking. I don't know firsthand, but I would assume that the, the folks operating in these specific areas probably had some protocols in place where they were spending less time outside of their unit, outside of their ambulance or fire engine and doing everything they could inside. Now there's some things you, you know, when it comes to saving a life, you just have to do what you have to do. And first responders, they put their life out there every day. Uh, But I suspect that they probably had some protocols in place to try and limit any excessive outside activity to be less of a target. That makes sense. On October 19th, 2002, Jeffrey Hopper, 37, who's from Florida, was traveling through Virginia when he was shot in a parking lot at a Ponderosa Steakhouse near I-95 in Ashland, Virginia. This is about 83 miles south of Washington, D.C., And this is near, for our area, a popular amusement park, King's Dominion. I'm pretty sure that we've actually eaten at this Ponderosa, or at least I have. 
Um, I also wanted to say I, I miss Ponderosa and it just lines up with all these places, you know, it's like craft stores and Home Depot and uh, gas station. Like you said, it's all these things that you just think uh, there's almost this nostalgia to it where these are places that are where you would want to go and where you would you would find some form of joy or it was this routine, just what you were doing as an American living in this area. We were at a Ponderosa one time and you were probably a year and a half, maybe. Oh, so I should remember this. Well, I figure somebody would have told you by now. You know, I mean, I'm waiting for one of these episodes. You tell me I'm actually adopted. No, not that I know of. You you were sitting in a high chair. We're eating at the Ponderosa, and you had to be, like, fed things. So I gave you a strawberry because they had the all-you-can-eat deal there. You get things off the buffet. I, I don't, love Ponderosa, man. I don't even know why I had a strawberry. Perhaps it was because you had a real thing for peaches, and maybe I grabbed that as something alternative but i gave you the strawberry and you hated it but the look on your face was hysterical so i gave you another one and you hated it too but your look was even funnier and the just the grimaces and the faces you were making so then you know i gave you another one and uh i think that's when mom came back to the table and she asked what was going on you know and i was like hey look i'm giving you strawberries she's like does he like them I'm like no he hates them she's like then why do you keep giving them to him i'm like look it's funny <laughs> makes a lot of sense so that's my <laughs> villain origin story everybody <laughs> now you know and i haven't liked strawberries ever since <laughs> oh man um so back to jeffrey hopper who was shot at this ponderosa which is near and dear to my strawberry heart the bullet had pierced Je jeffrey's upper abdomen tore through several organs but surgeons removed part of his stomach the left half of his pancreas and his entire spleen his surgeon, Dr. Rao Vatri, said the victim, who's six feet tall and weighs 200 pounds, is a very, very strong man. And once he comes out of this, I think he'll have a normal life. But it's going to be a bumpy, long road, a long process. At the time this occurred, his wife, I assume they're still together, I have no idea, uh, issued a statement thanking the people of Richmond, which was close by, for their support and prayers for her husband. She also asked people to pray for the attacker and that no one else is hurt. So uh, it's pretty, I thought that was interesting that in the midst of uh, just what had to be an awful experience for her, that she had the wherewithal and the thought to think, to ask people to pray for this man who was doing this and also that it would end. I think that's a whole lot of grace right there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I understand pray for your enemies, but my gosh, that takes a lot of grace to, to request prayer for the man who's doing this. Wow. Yeah, when you're putting out a statement about your husband who's recovering in the hospital, for sure. And after Jeffrey was, was shot and wounded in Ashland, police found a shell casing and a message tacked to a tree in the nearby woods. The message was uh, in the form of a multi-page letter, and it accused the police of ineptitude and demanded $10 million to stop the killings. On October 22, 2002, bus driver Conrad Johnson, who's 35, from Oxon Hill, Maryland, is shot at his, as he's standing on the top step inside his commuter bus in Aspen Hill, Maryland. The father of two was a 10-year county employee who loved basketball and loved his kids. He was shot in the stomach, apparently as he was getting off the bus in a staging area for Montgomery County's ride-on commuter line. At this point, this spree has gone on for nearly three weeks. The pair went undetected. People at these scenes gave uh, conflicting accounts of what they believed they heard and saw. Early on, and for most of the time span, the police and the public were looking for some sort of a white van or a white box truck like we talked about. But as Bob said, I mean, how many white vans are driving around the D.C. area? And there's so many. It's just it, it's the kind of clue that says, you know, well, it was a guy. 
It's right. just not helpful. And there never was a white vehicle. Sure, they were there, but that wasn't... The snipers weren't even using a white vehicle. Investigators were struggling to figure out exactly where the shots were coming from and how the shooter was going undetected. Remember, these are happening in broad daylight, and the trajectory appeared to be flat, so they didn't think the sniper was shooting from an elevated position, you know, stationed in a building across the street or something like that. But how would somebody stand on the ground in these places, shopping centers and Home Depots, Ponderosas, and shoot so many people without any witnesses seeing something or being able to have some clue to catch them? Why weren't they finding more evidence? They were left stumped and puzzled and, and scrambling to try to figure out what was going on. Some witnesses didn't even think shootings had occurred, like the guys that were working at the car lot. They thought the lawnmower had just injured him. They didn't really think they heard a gunshot. People would call 911 and they would report that there was a loud noise. And in one of the recordings, the woman said there was a loud noise. It was loud. It was like a bomb, but it wasn't. And the dispatcher said, well, do, you, do you think it could be a gunshot? And she said, I guess it could be. Uh, but it was like a bomb, but it wasn't a bomb. And that was it was like this disbelief of what was going on around them. And, and it seemed that there was something about what was happening that was keeping the shootings obfuscated just enough that people really didn't pick up that that's what was happening. So how exactly did these two get caught when they were able to successfully evade detection for so long? Well, I don't think they got caught because they tried to rob a bank through the drive through window. That is true. You would be correct. But it was maybe their ego, their cockiness, or I don't know what you'd attribute it to, but essentially they undid themselves. During this ordeal, a tip line had been established. The call center was absolutely inundated with calls and information. Most of it was incorrect or useless, but the center was manned by FBI agents, analysts, police officers, and others to help take the calls nonstop. And the calls came in nonstop. There were so many tips they could hardly get through them. And this included calls from John. In fact, John had called the tip line more than once. He'd called it several times. And some of his first calls were essentially ignored. They went in the pile of things that didn't matter. The call taker not realizing who was on the other end of the line. Finally, though, when John called and told the tip takers to look into a shooting that happened in Montgomery, and a, a priest relayed that a man had called him with the same information, police finally looked into it. But this wasn't Montgomery County, Maryland, which was what the thought was. It was Montgomery, Alabama. And sure enough, there had been an unsolved shooting there. Investigators zeroed in on a shooting that occurred outside a liquor store in late September the same year. One woman was killed and another was seriously wounded in what was originally considered to just be a botched robbery. The police chief down in Montgomery, Alabama, John Wilson, said that the gun used was not the same gun in the sniper shootings, but there was a fingerprint that gave the police the break they needed. The print was found on a magazine, the kind you read, about weapons, and it was on the ground outside the liquor store. That fingerprint belonged to a boy named Lee Boyd Malvo. His prints were on file from when he came into the United States illegally with John. Police quickly traced Lee to an address in Tacoma, Washington, where he once lived with a former army soldier named John. From there, everything else fit. John's background, access to weapons, training, everything started to make sense. Police now had another crucial piece of information. There was a blue caprice registered in John's name. No white van. Early on October 24th, shortly after Montgomery County Police announced that they were looking for John Allen Muhammad, Lee Boyd Malvo, and a blue 1990 Chevrolet Caprice and included the license plate information, the car would be spotted. At 1.17 in the morning, a man named Whitney Donahue from Greencastle, Pennsylvania, made a nerve-wracking call to 911 to report that he was parked near the sniper suspect's car. 
Donahue was just a regular guy who worked in the area. He was returning from a late shift early Thursday morning when he pulled into a Frederick County rest area alongside Interstate 70 in Maryland. He's later told the media that when he pulled into the rest stop, there were only two vehicles in the lot. And when he came in, he said to himself, well, that looks like a Caprice. When my headlights hit it, I could tell it was dark blue with a jersey tag, he said. And that's exactly the car the police were looking for. The one that they said the sniper was driving. The one that was registered to John Muhammad. Donahue said that he knew right away that it was the car police were searching for. He had written the license plate number on the back of his timesheet when he heard it announced on the radio on his ride home from work. He called 911 on his cell phone. Initially, he could hear them, but they couldn't hear him, and they hung up on it. So he called again, and the same thing happened. And by this time, he's got to pee bad. Right? I mean, that's why he stopped. And so now, if you think he had to pee before... Right. He's got to, he pulls in there because he's got to pee, and now he realizes he's sitting next to what he believes is the sniper's vehicle. Yeah, I imagine that would... And, the, and he can't get 911. By the way, this is five years before the iPhone came out. That's a really good... Um, yeah. And, and, I mean, I don't know about you. If I pulled in having to pee, I think I've upgraded this to a number two situation at <laughs> Pro- this point. Probably if, if that uh, horse hadn't already left the barn. So, when Donahue returns from the restroom, he moves his car around the corner from the Caprice, hoping that he can get to an area where his cell phone will actually work. It doesn't, and so he calls 911 again, this time using his company phone, and it worked. The dispatcher he contacted asked him to check the plates again, and the authorities began to close in. Donahue remained on the phone with the dispatcher for two hours and 45 minutes. Could you imagine? No, I mean, that is that is a long time. I think I would sweat out half my body weight. I'm an idiot. So at this point, I, I don't know. It depends. I might have already gone to the car. I, I don't know. <laughs> so you, you'd be victim number uh, <laughs> right. number 11? Most likely. <laughs> I mean, what does that look like, Bob? You're going to like knock on the window? Excuse me, sir. Are you the sniper? Well, you're familiar with our mother, right? I mean, <laughs> well, that's, that's a good point. <laughs> and don't forget that our 80-something-year-old grandmother intervened in a police pursuit through her yard where she thought she was just going to tell the escapee to, you know, not move and wait. You, you got to respect the old ladies. It's uh, I get it. I would stop. I would listen. Well, he wasn't the only one that waited at the rest stop that night. And there's an account from the first officer who responded to the scene, retired Maryland State Trooper First Class D. Wayne Smith. But he wasn't retired at the time. He was not retired at the time. He is retired now. Okay. So he is actively responding, and he is the first uniformed, active-duty police officer to show up on the scene. Smith said he was patrolling in his cruiser near the foot of South Mountain when he received the call around 1 a.m. The dispatcher said that a car matching the description uh, was parked at a rest stop near the I-70 westbound lanes. So Smith told reporters that when he was on his way, he was scared to death that they were going to leave. He just wanted to make sure he got there before they were able to get away. So when he got to the rest area, he parked his cruiser in a way that had blocked the ramp to the interstate. He wasn't taking any chances, right? He grabs his shotgun and watches the car until other units arrive about five minutes later, which he said felt like an hour. Because the windows of the Caprice were tinted, troopers couldn't determine whether someone was in the car or if the snipers were watching from a nearby tree line. So again, to your point, is this some sort of a thing where now there's an APB out on the car, let's park it here, let's make our last stand and go hide up in the tree line. And you know how South Mountain is. I mean, that would not be difficult to do. You'd probably have a great vantage point. No, especially we're one o'clock in the morning. It's, it's dark out and the only light right there is going to be right there at the rest stop. So you could scoot off into those woods anywhere and uh, yeah, be a real problem for those that are coming to get you. That would be scary as heck. I do want to go back to the 911 call, though, the civilian that called in. 
it wasn't that he was waiting two hours and 45 minutes for help to get dispatched. Correct. It was that through he was this whole ordeal. He stayed yeah. on the line with them through the whole ordeal, which um, is probably pretty smart. Yeah, I think so. And I, I thought that was a good move on the dispatcher's part and uh, good stuff. Smith said that the officers at the scene believed they were going to make an assault on the vehicle, but instead they were ordered to establish a perimeter and wait for a SWAT team to arrive. He said, you know, you realize the gravity of this thing. You realize that they have killed a lot of people indiscriminately. You knew that they wouldn't hesitate to kill someone standing between them and freedom. And he was surprised that nobody tried to leave the rest stop until about 45 minutes after his arrival. Shortly before 2 a.m., a tractor-trailer started to head down the exit ramp. Not knowing if the snipers had possibly hijacked the truck, Smith said he stopped the vehicle and forced the driver out at gunpoint. Officers figured out that the snipers weren't inside the rig, but they still didn't let the driver leave. They really, they just, they were going to make sure this scene was absolutely buttoned up. The last thing you'd want to have happen is for, you know, take a look at the driver and say, okay, you're not the guy and let him go and then find out that the bad guys were in the back of the truck. They were in the sleeper compartment. They were somewhere else and they, yeah, right, right. And they managed to get away. I totally respect that. Yeah. They also decided to use the size of the tractor trailer to their advantage as it made a much more formidable roadblock than a cruiser. State police helicopters picked up the SWAT team in Montgomery County and then flew the agents to a McDonald's parking lot in Myersville. They were then driven to the rest stop from the McDonald's and got out at the exit and slowly made their way toward the vehicle. The SWAT team broke the windows and threw in stun grenades. The snipers were captured within seconds, roughly two hours after Smith had received the initial call. Smith told reporters that the pair didn't have a chance to put up a fight, and the whole thing couldn't have worked out any better. During the operation, officers had blocked off both sides of I-70 in the entrance and exit to the rest stop, and they had a helicopter hovering overhead ready to track the snipers in case they tried to flee on foot. Uh, That's right, because FLIR is a good thing. Do you know why they were able to apprehend them without incident? They were asleep. Yeah. So one of them was supposed to be keeping watch and uh, had fallen asleep. And had it not been for that, I, I do think that this would have probably went down a lot differently. So I'm grateful that uh, that they fell asleep on the job. Yeah, this if one of them was awake and noticed the first civilian just watching them or taking notice of them, the best case scenario for him would have been that they just left but then they could have caused a lot more crime. And we know that their crime spree in their mind was not over. They had lots of other locations picked out. That could have gone bad in so many ways. For sure. And this blue Caprice that is clearly not a white van, officers would come to find out, you know, after they've apprehended these guys and they look at it, this was like a roaming sniper's nest. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier that they thought they found the, uh, I think it was the tarot card, in what they referred to as his sniper's perch, because that was just their assumption that, well, he left this card here for us, uh, this must be like where, you know, he was set up and watching people and whatnot. But the reality was part of the reason why it was so difficult for law enforcement to, to crack this case was they had taken the blue Caprice, which had formerly been a police car, and they had made some modifications to it so that they could lay down in the trunk and access that from the back seat. And they would actually do the shootings from inside the vehicle, which that was able to police their brass, uh, you know, their their shell casings when they were in the car, stayed inside the car. They had carved out a little hole from the, the trunk of the vehicle so that they could see their targets. And it also had an effect on, on the sound and the, the muzzle flash. All that was impacted by the fact that they were in this vehicle when they would do these shootings, which made it a little bit harder for people to people who already aren't trained and don't usually know the difference between gunshots and fireworks and, and cars backfiring. 
And now you have something that's even less familiar or less easily identifiable, even to trained ears. So it just helped to kind of mask what was really going on. Yeah, for pulling these crimes, largely in parking lots and those kinds of areas, it was the perfect camouflage. A car doesn't stand out in a parking lot, and an older car with, you know, some holes in it, that doesn't stick out. I mean, maybe if they were down in Potomac or out in Beverly Hills or whatever, it might have, but in normal neighborhoods and normal areas, it's not uncommon to see cars that maybe have some aesthetic issues. They were able to hide right there in plain sight, which also meant they didn't necessarily need to make a fast getaway as literally the only thing that was visible from the outside of the car, even if you were looking, might have been just the tip of the barrel. And so all they had to do was ease that back in. Nobody's going to be looking for it at the split second when it happens. It's going to take a second or two for people to even realize what might have happened. So they pull that back in, and then even if they're in a parking space, they can calmly, quietly back out of that parking space. And most of these happen near some major highway, so they could slowly make their way to that highway and just look like every other part of traffic, every other car, truck, van that was moving around in there. There were situations where people saw somebody fall, they heard what they thought was a gunshot, and scooted on out of that parking lot. This, of course, be well before police arrive, so it's not unusual to see cars booking it out of the area in some of those situations. And remember, everybody, including me and you and mom and dad and the police and everybody else, are looking for a white van. No, I no, I well, was you never looking for a white van. I thought that was the dumbest thing I heard from the minute I heard it. I forgot. You're my Latin-speaking genius brother. But I, the reality is most people were were foolishly looking for this white van. I'll admit my stupidity when I have it, but I will tell you one thing I'm sure of in life is the minute I saw this white van story, I was like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Well, you're right. And, I, you know, I'm sure there were others who felt like you felt. And, and it does come back to that, you know, you've got these tips and you got to try to decide what's credible and what's not credible and what's good new information and what's not good information. And kind of like the thing with the rest stop, you know, everybody involved wanted to catch these guys. They wanted to put an end to it. And so you have to balance that. Uh, do you put out information to try to help or, or what do you hold back and what do you put out? So, uh, but I do agree with you. I mean, that, that kind of information certainly didn't seem very helpful. And there would be people, um, there was one guy in this case, a, a witness, quote unquote, who would put out, uh, who would tell the police that he had seen the, the guy who did this and the kind of vehicle he got into and, and spun this yarn and, it turned out, uh, as the police continued to work down his story, after they had put out that information, they learned that this individual was actually in the store at the time the shooting happened and couldn't have possibly seen anything. Right, and yeah. And so then they had to walk it all back. And, and I've seen the officer who was responsible for putting out that information uh, was asked, you know, wasn't this a big embarrassment to you? You know, do you feel bad about it? Whatever. And he said, you know, at the end of the day, what if, if I knew that he was lying, would I put it out there? No, but... Uh, in the moment, you know, our goal was to just get information to people. And if I hadn't, and that had been accurate, and they, they would have been able to get away, then then I would feel a lot worse than just looking bad. I'd rather look bad. Right. But on the other hand, other law enforcement took a different approach. About the time the white van report was, was surfaced to police, also, there was someone that reported this blue caprice in the area at, the, at about the same time. And so the, the question was, which one of these is legit? Well, the guy that had put forth the blue Caprice sighting, he was known to police. He was a, a drug user, had given them bad information in the past. And so they said, look, we're going to go with the white van. That's the, the alert we're going to put out. 
And, you know, it, I wouldn't want to have to make that call, be in their situation and make that call. I wouldn't put out the white van thing because it, at best it's useless because there's a white van everywhere. Because there's so many. Yeah. Um, at, at least there was something unique, that, a blue Caprice. That's a little different than a white van. Yeah, especially in 2002. In 1990, maybe the Blue Caprice is a little bit more popular, but still not white van popular. But, right. But by 2002, you know, a, a 90s Blue Caprice, that's pretty specific, and, and that would at least give you something to work with. Yeah, because white vans, like I said, they're used by plumbers, electricians, contractors, ice cream trucks, serial killers. U-Haul. <laughs> right. Everybody has got them. Now, December 18th, 2003, a jury convicted Lee on two charges. He would later be convicted of additional murders, and he received multiple life sentences without the possibility of parole. However, due to a United States Supreme Court case, life sentences without the possibility of parole were ruled to be unconstitutional. And so he was resentenced to life with the possibility of parole. In March of 2004, a judge sentenced John Muhammad to death following a jury's sentencing recommendation, and he was later executed by lethal injection on November 10th, 2009. Good riddance. In August of, of 2022, Lee, who's 37 at that point, was denied parole after uh, federal courts had ordered him resentenced again, like I had said. So in response to the U.S. Supreme Court case, Virginia and other states like it had passed a law creating the possibility of parole for these juvenile offenders. From his parole hearings and paperwork, uh, there's a quote, Considering your offense and your institutional records, the parole board wrote, the board concludes that you should serve more of your sentence before being paroled. In the span of 21 days, 10 people lost their lives, three more were seriously injured, and an entire region was living in absolute fear. Why? John was angry. Now, he didn't say a whole lot in the aftermath. He was pretty tight-lipped and, and just kept his motivations and thoughts and the details to himself. A lot of what we know about the internal details come from Lee. Now, some places you'll read, and it was supposedly part of John's plan to randomly kill people so that when he killed his ex-wife Mildred, it wouldn't be traced back to him. This was some elaborate scheme to pull that off. That was the mission. But I think that's only part of the story. I agree. I think a lot of this had to do with his God complex, and I think there was some type of anger toward the government or the whatever he perceived as being in power at, at that point. Yeah, and there's reports that some of the people around him at various points that he was, uh, the word they use is sympathetic. I don't know exactly what that means, but toward the September 11th attacks, essentially he thought that he could understand the motivation and uh, to some level, I guess, agreed with the, with them carrying that out, which that's obviously horrible. In his mind, did this all start out as a mission to kill his ex-wife and then it kind of blew up into something more after the first couple murders or, or when they started to make their way across the country and they were taking lives and money to fuel their mission, as they called it. Did he start to realize, well, this is you know, it gave him feelings that he hadn't had and, and made him think some kind of way that and then he his ego just ballooned out of proportion and he really did start to, you know, the God complex took over. And then he thought, well, why stop with killing my wife when I can exact some sort of sick, twisted revenge on this authority uh, idea or people or institution that I have this grudge with or that I'm not fond of? 
Um, I certainly think that that it's more in that vein of things. You know, I don't know at what point it went down that road or that it devolved to that level, but uh, it definitely seems like this is more than just some simple plot to kill his ex-wife and that there were these motivations like you talked of, this hatred for authority or the uh, the United States or, or whatever, rich people, whatever it was, and, and, you know, his influences and some of the things he was reading and listening to. And I think we see that. You know, why leave a tarot card and a rambling letter? Why make these phone calls to the police? If he hadn't done those things, sadly, I think he would have probably went undetected much, much, much longer because it wasn't until he made the phone calls that they really got the break they needed to solve this case. It's entirely possible. I do remember when this was going on, there suddenly being news coverage of this search that was going on in the state of Washington and the uh, news folks telling us this was related to the D.C. sniper. And for all of us on the outside, it was like, what in the world? They're out here looking at the backyard of a house in... In Tacoma. Yeah. Right. And they're looking at this tree. What does that have to do with the price of tea? Somehow it came around. And think, too, when he, when John lost his children, when his children were taken away from him, he was devastated. But then, very shortly thereafter, Lee comes to live with him. And now he's not devastated anymore. At least not that we hear about. It made me wonder if it wasn't that he was upset that he didn't have his kids or if that he was upset that he could not be in a father role or in a trainer, manager, leader. That just supports the whole God complex thing to me. He needed to be in a position of authority over someone or he needed to be able to train some minion or minions. And, you know, he took all of that stuff to the grave with him, which, you know, honestly, that's probably about as much as I want to talk about this. uh, what, What do you usually call him? I'm not saying that in this episode. Oh, we're going to have one episode without that. If there was anyone where I thought you would crack that out, it was this one. No, I think the world is better off without him. I'm perfectly comfortable knowing that he is worm food. Yeah, I agree. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us on the Brothers in Crime podcast. Feedback and suggestions are always welcome. For links and resources related to this episode, please see the show notes or visit us at brothersincrimepodcast.com. We hope you'll save, subscribe, or bookmark us on your favorite podcast site and join us for the next episode. Many people are in businesses and restaurants in the area. They are locked inside. Witnesses, some who apparently reported seeing a white man leaving the gas station.